Hi, I'm Rena Ninen, and you're listening to The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a new series from Foreign Policy. Today, we're headed to Uganda, where a group of women are saving money and sort of going to couples counseling. Women like 32-year-old Namara Eve. These dialogues have made my marriage become good, and it does help me and my husband work together collaboratively and in making decisions concerning our finances. Namara is talking about a program that she participated in set up by the nonprofit CARE. It's called Household Dialogues. The overall aim of the program was to try and encourage women to save more money in order to have more financial freedom. But beyond that, it was also to find out how the husbands of these women can be more actively supportive. Namara was already trying to take a proactive approach to her finances. She was part of an informal savings group that operates outside of a bank, where she and a dozen or so other individuals from her village band together to save their money collectively. It's a practice that's actually pretty common in Uganda. One estimate showed that around two-thirds of all adults in Uganda save money that way. But there's a problem with this system. Resources are limited. There's a very tight ceiling on how much can be used by one individual in the group. And to really access large sums of capital, you need to join a bank. And these days, one of the easiest ways to do that is through a smartphone, where you can just simply tap into their digital financial services. So smartphones are increasingly common in Uganda, as well as other parts of Africa. But in many married households, they're controlled by the husband. So that means that the husband controls their access to greater capital, which brings us back to these dialogues and the question of how men can be encouraged to change the traditional financial dynamics in their household. Julia Arnold is a longtime researcher on women's financial inclusion focused on the global South. A lot of her work looks at projects like the household dialogues to better understand how these services impact low-income women. In addition to facilitating the talks, CARE also helped women open a mobile bank account called a digital sub-wallet as a way to encourage savings. Julia Arnold with Axiom, you analyzed a program in Uganda from the nonprofit CARE that sort of tried to change social norms around women opening these digital wallets. What did you find? The digital sub-wallet project in Uganda, it was a two-year randomized control trial, and it looked at about... 1,500 or so participants, and there were um, two treatment groups. One treatment group uh, was offered the digital sub-wallet, and it was a essentially a wallet on your phone that has PIN enabled, and it had multiple little pockets for women to save for specific things like school fees, which was a big one, um, or uh, you know household expenses, or you know long-term savings. And the other treatment group received household dialogues between couples, as well as the digital sub-wallet. By the end of the program, um, married women who received the household dialogues, um, they felt they had more participation in their household decision-making, that their voice um, was was listened to and heard. Um, and there were actually really interesting spillover impacts to unmarried women, who again, were not part of, of course, the household dialogues. Their uptake also increased, which speaks to um, a really interesting sort of solidarity impact in the group where married women are sharing information with the unmarried women about the benefits of of um, this access to this, uh, this particular account. So this program from the nonprofit CARE, do you think it's something that's scalable that could become policy and used around the world maybe? 
So I would, I would like to, to think that. Um, so what we're seeing globally is a persistent gender gap in bank account ownership, in mobile phone ownership. We see that despite a rapid focus on um, creating access to financial services over the past 10, 15 years, the gender gap has remained. And what that says is that there's something else going on. Um, there's some other constraint happening for, for women. It's not that she doesn't have access to it. It's that she's not able to, she's not able to access to it. So that speaks to potentially, um, a social and gender normative constraint that's happening. And what these household dialogues in, in these savings groups address are in fact, those social and gender normative constraints, the, um, time poverty that women have based on the care responsibilities, the disproportionate care responsibilities that she has in the household. What was interesting in the care research as well was the lack of communication between husband and wife. It's not necessarily a partnership so much as a competition. Men were earning money and spending money and their wives had no idea. They had no idea how much. They had no idea what they were spending money on. And the men who in the study who were honest, <laughs> turned out that they were earning three times more than what their wives knew and that they were spending most of it on alcohol and airtime. Wow. That's incredible. Yes. <laughs> That's incredible. So what was amazing was that over the course of these household dialogues during this care study, that they saw tangible changes in men's savings behavior and men's communication. There were a few, and it's notable, there were a few men who did not enjoy being found out. Um, I and bet. That we, <laughs> I bet. <laughs> we need to be careful um, when, we're, when we um, have these kinds of interventions to, to um, keep women's sort of safety um, in mind. But, um, but on the whole, it's, it, the, the men really did sort of um, see a benefit to bringing more of that money into the household. Um, it's important. I feel like it's important also to note that, you know, the, the spending on alcohol, it's not just because men are luscious. It was a, it's a, it's a means of social connection Mm. for men. They get together, they all buy rounds of beer for each other. Um, it's a way to blow off steam. And, and that's, that's not something that we should argue should be completely eradicated. That's not fair. Um, but the communication in the household, the, the mutual sharing of, of goals, the mutual taking care of those who are, who are under the, the, the roof, that's something that we can um, sort of get behind and, and work toward through these, through these household dialogues. You know, it's interesting, Julie. I can see how thoroughly you've researched this to the point where you're not just looking at women, you're looking at the impact of also understanding men and the implications of, of how important that is in a society society of all the stuff that you've researched where you see women being excluded how can we change the dialogue on female economic empowerment where do you think the lowest hanging fruit is and what's the highest hanging fruit as well <laughs> oh my goodness that is the uh, core of the research um, I'm currently doing so so I would start with the basics 
We don't actually know if financial inclusion leads to women's economic empowerment. We have, in fact, a very mixed uh, record on that. It really, it's really context dependent. It's really provider dependent. Um, and one of the biggest issues we have as an industry um, is that we, on the whole, don't necessarily collect the right kind of data. I would say the main thing that I would love to see the sector working on is accepting that we already impact social and gender norms by virtue of what we do. We bring money into people's households. We are already <laughs> playing with gender norms. And then looking inward at the financial system from the policies and regulations all the way down to the provider and the way that the product is designed to see where we're making assumptions about who a customer is, what, what an entrepreneur looks like, um, what the requirements are for a loan and whether or not women, particularly low-income women, have those documents and can um, access that important <laughs> line of credit and begin to really think through how gender norms constrain women's access and what is are the responsibility of the financial service industry to address those heads head on? Um, I would say that is both the lowest and highest hanging fruit because <laughs> there are there are parts that are are easier to address than others. Um, Full scale regulatory overhaul yeah. is a big job. <laughs> it is a big job. You're absolutely right. You know, before we go, where do you see women's financial inclusion? This field headed. What's your hope and what do you think we can transform in the coming years? So my hope is that providers, governments, donors, investors all work in tandem to understand where the existing gender gaps are and address them in the various ways that they can. Donors and investors can do something different than governments and, and regulatory bodies, um, central banks. They all have a different role to play. And um, it would be amazing if we could have a global conversation about social and gender norms and how they impact women's financial inclusion and what is everyone's role and, 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 and how do we work together. I do think that in 10 years, it'll look different and my job will be different. I will be talking about different things and maybe it will be more nuanced um, because some of these more basic, big, bigger issues that I really feel very confident that we can tackle will, will be well underway. Julia Arnold with Axion. Thank you very much, Julia. Thank you so much. While Julia Arnold was able to crunch the numbers of the program, it's sometimes hard to really understand the impact of a program like this without hearing directly from a participant. So for that, we turn back to Namara Eve from Uganda. She and her husband have big dreams for their family. They want to buy more land, pay for their children's education, and finish construction on their home. Typically in Uganda, women like Namara would not have a big say in any of these decisions. But now she says she's been given some of the tools that she needs to have a seat at the table. I really like the first dialogue meeting because he told us that before, the roles for women were like cooking and doing house chores, which are not supposed to be done by men. But when he was teaching us, he told us that all roles should be shared. There should be cooperation or togetherness so that everyone gets involved in doing the work. So I really like that. 
The first meeting took place at my home, where the trainer came to train me from. I felt so good because we were taught about how we can cooperate and how we can work together and share the responsibilities. So this made me feel so good. And was your husband there? What was it like having him there as you're doing these exercises and talking about these things? I felt so good because my husband was present and that I was going to be in the position to work collaboratively with my husband so that we can develop ourselves. Did you learn anything about your husband you didn't know before? I learned so many things about my husband because, for example, he used to hide money from me. He would have money and he wouldn't tell me that he had the money. So during the dialogues, I got to know that he was hiding his money from me. So that thing really made me happy. Was your husband supportive when you started doing this and going to this organization? Before these dialogues, my husband was not supportive. My husband used to hide his money because he didn't want me to know his income so that I shouldn't be in a position to ask for anything. So before the dialogues, the situation was difficult. And no, he was not supportive. What was it like for your husband after the first session? After the first dialogue, my husband felt so good. In fact, he said, sweetheart, you think I should also be doing some of these things that I've been talking about, like peeling, washing, and looking after the babies. I really thought those jobs are only for ladies, but I think from now on, I should also participate in doing some of those chores. So my husband took it positively, and he was willing to continue with the next sessions. After the dialogues, I have seen that his expenditure is less than his income. Wow, that's incredible. Do most men in Uganda react the way your husband did? I don't think that other men in Uganda behave like that because they have not had the opportunity to go through these dialogues. So other men are still behaving unsupportively to their wives and they don't share. So I think if they are also given the opportunity to be in these dialogues, they can also respond as my husband responded. I'm so fascinated by your husband's transformation. What did the counselor, the trainer say that you think really made a difference for your husband? What was so eye-catching? What the trainer told my husband was to have joint decision-making because the trainer emphasized that two heads are better than one. So when each one of you is thinking differently, you're working different ways. That was really what was so eye-catching for my husband. Do you think your husband has managed to convince other husbands to look differently at their finances and the involvement of women in work? My husband has acted as an example in the village because so many other people come asking him how he does it, reflecting on our past when there was no development at all. And now that we are developing because of making decisions together, so he's acting as an example. In fact, most people around our age, they come to ask him how he's doing it. And he explained to them how the trainer that came from their group came to our home and trained them on how they can work together as a household. How do you think these sessions affect your marriage and your financial decision making? These dialogues have made my marriage become good. And it does help me and my husband work together collaboratively and in making decisions concerning our finances. What's your advice for other women who want to be more active in dealing with their finances and, and who want to work. What I can advise my fellow women is accept and work with their husbands so that they can improve their homes. They should also start saving the little they can. They should not get involved in prostitution. 
because like me, I was badly off. But now I'm doing well because of cooperating with my husband and accepting to get involved in this dialogue. What's the main thing you learned from the household dialogues? So the main thing that I've learned from these dialogues is to have joint decision-making in my household, which will help us to progress and continuously plan together as a family, not as individuals. I walked away from that interview feeling pretty moved. These dialogues seem to really broaden the relationship Namara has with her husband. She says being more forthright about money helped ease a power imbalance between them, which in turn helped strengthen their marriage. You may be thinking, is Namara just telling us what we want to hear? I know, I wondered that too. And her responses were so positive. But actually her answers were in line with the study on this Household Dialogues project. More than 80% of the women said that they saw a change in their husband's behavior because of the financial counseling sessions. This largely contributed to them feeling more confident in their ability to save, more so than the group that just got the digital bank account. And interestingly, just knowing what their husbands spent money on significantly decreased these women's level of psychological distress. But this digital bank account that had all these special mobile folders for saving didn't do much, even though many of the women opened accounts. They didn't have a significant amount of money. At the end of the day, though, it's kind of hard to save a lot of money when you don't have a lot of money and you don't have a steady, high-quality job. Which brings us to the topic of next week's episode, the extremely high percentage of women around the world working informally or under the table. For that, we'll go to India, where around 95% of working women are in the informal sector. Last year, when lockdown was enforced in March, on the 22nd of March, I haven't managed to forget that day even now. Before that, I worked in five houses. Since COVID came, slowly, slowly, all the homes where I worked stopped giving me work. So my home became destitute. It was very bad. My home, we survived with a lot of difficulty. And this was the situation I was in for about six months. Majority of women have no social security net to fall back on. I mean, COVID has shown the kind of gravity that has. Domestic workers who were the lifeline of most households in India, they were just asked to not come, start coming from the very next day. And they had no, no means of livelihood. And they were left without any salaries for months. If you improve the labor conditions of informal workers, that could really advance women's economic empowerment. And that does it for today's show. The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is a production of Foreign Policy and is supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and write us a review. It really helps us spread the word about what we're doing. The show is hosted by me, Brina Ninen. Laura Rosbrow-Tellum is our senior producer. Andrew Perella is our editor. Rob Sachs is our managing director. Foreign Policy's audio team includes Dan Efron, Rosie Julin, and Zamone Perez. Lulu Jemima provided the voiceover for Namara's interview. And special thanks to Nureen Beda for interpreting that interview. Thank you, and we'll be back in your feed next week.